Man, it was so nice of the elders to give me a week off to go on vacation, but also to pay for the trip. And what a bunch of generous guys. Just a couple minutes and I'll be at Pearson and I'll be on my way. I can't believe I'm on my way. I cannot believe I'm on my way to London. London, England. It's, it's, it's going to be the best. Buckingham Palace. And, and the Thames River and, and all that history and the castles. And, and, and there's just going to be so much double-decker buses and the queen i mean this is going to be the best i i cannot wait to get there i've been just planning and strategizing and hoping for this moment and just just to have this week just to get lost in this incredible place i mean this is this is what i've been hoping for for so long and and I just can't wait to get there and experience all the sights and the sounds and the smells and just being around those people and the culture and the history. This is going to be the best trip ever, the best experience ever, the best adventure ever. And, and, and nothing can ruin that. I don't even care if it rains. This is going to be the experience of a life. This will define my life, this trip, this experience. I can't wait. There are these moments in life where the best laid plans don't work out the way you want. And to my horror, I ended up in London, Ontario rather than London, England. You start telling yourself, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. This too shall pass. But God, if you're so mighty, I mean, don't I deserve a break? I, I like it when things go the way I plan, the way I determine. 
I like being in control. But when curveballs come my way, why does God allow that to happen? Well, let's make lemonade from lemons and find out what London, Ontario, Canada has to offer. Hey, they got a Thames River. There's a story in the scriptures found in 2 Samuel 9 that helps me. Calls me back to those moments of delay. Those moments when life is not fair. Those times when the world and people just don't make sense. When things are not going the way I want them to. David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied, the king asked. Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Makir, son of Emil, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makar, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. So there's this background to this story. 3,000 years ago in ancient Middle East, when a new king took the throne, the previous king's uh, family members were usually exterminated or, or destroyed. And the former monarch's family had every reason to live in fear of their lives once the new king took the throne. 
and King Saul, who had been the previous king, had tried on numerous occasions to kill David. So you can just imagine that Mephibosheth, his grandson, has been and who's living with this handicap, is also living every day in great fear of his life. But one day, and the scriptures tell us this, that King David is looking back on his great friendship with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. And it tells us this in verse 1 of chapter 9. David asked, is there anyone else left in the household of Saul that I might show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? And the Hebrew word there for kindness is chesed. And it's often rendered grace, mercy, or loving kindness in the other parts of the Old Testament. And David isn't just asking, is there anyone left in Saul's household who's deserving? No, he simply is asking, is there anyone out there that I can show has said to for Jonathan's sake? And he's told by one of his aides that one of Jonathan's sons had survived. But his aide adds, you don't really want this boy around. You see, he's crippled. He's slow. He's disabled. He's a curveball. He's just going to throw your whole plan off. That destination you have in mind, it's going to get slowed down, wrecked, maybe completely obliterated if you take this person and they have nothing of earthly value to offer you. And I love David's response to this aid. He doesn't say, like, how badly is the man crippled? No, David says, go and get him. Bring him here. Where does he live? And, and David's aid, he tells him that this guy lives in a place called Lodabar. I mean, the very name of the place that Mephibosheth is living is identified with stark barrenness. No crops. A place that, that is wilderness, a wasteland. In today's terms, you could say that Mephibosheth, he's living in the pits. Now, now think about what's going on in Mephibosheth's mind when, when he's called for and he arrives at the king's house in Jerusalem. He's been this man who's probably wanted to stay below the radar, stay anonymous. He never wanted to be found, and he certainly didn't want to be found by the king who had succeeded his grandpa, who had been on many occasions trying to kill him. So he probably thinks now he's headed for death. After all, why would there be any reason for the king to love him? I mean, there should be every reason why David would hate him. So he's whisked away in a, in a chariot and before he knows it, he's standing before the king. And the Bible tells us that he fell on his feet before David in great fear and trembling. And he had no idea of David's kind intentions to him. I mean, can you imagine how he must have felt when he heard the king say to him, Don't be afraid. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. There's that word said again, which means kindness, undeserved favor, grace. David had not sought out this crippled man 
the punishment. He, he, he only had good in mind for him. He only wanted to lift him up, not tear him down. Why did David want to treat him this way? David wanted to show him kindness, not because of anything he'd done, but for the sake of his father, Jonathan. And, and notice what Mephibosheth's response to David's kindness is. And maybe it's like how some of us respond to God's grace and kindness. He said to David, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? He's calling himself a dead dog. He used the most descriptive words he could think of to tell David that he was a contemptuous, despicable, worthless creature. Why? Because he knew that he was unknown. He, he knew he was a man of no consequence to the king. He knew he was crippled in both his feet. That he had nothing of earthly value to offer David. He, he had absolutely zero personal appeal. And all of this was true, but it was missing the point. The king wanted to embrace him in kindness and favor because it was Jonathan's son. In fact, David gave to this crippled man the same privileges and benefits that he gave to all his other sons. And so the Bible tells us Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem and ate at the king's table regularly. Now he is lame in both his feet. I mean, isn't that a terrific scene? I love what the author, Chuck Swindoll, um, says he captures this in his book on David. And, and with a little bit of imagination, we can picture that, that, that dinner scene, that family dinner scene at, at the king's royal table and his royal residence. And there's gold and silver fixtures and handcrafted wooden furniture and you got ceiling covered in torches. And David and his family have gathered for the evening meal. And on David's one side, he's got good-looking, well-tanned Absalom and his half-sister Tamar and maybe Amon. And on the other side, he's got Bathsheba and Solomon and maybe some of the other brothers. And as David scans the family table, he notices that all the kids are present except one. And it's not long before a familiar sound's heard throughout the hallway and the dining room. A clump, 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 clump. And, fi and finally, a young man appears and he slowly shuffles into his place. And it's Mephibosheth, of course. And he's seated at the king's table alongside the other members of the king's family. And once seated, the tablecloth of grace covers his feet. And we're reassured of the king's grace as we read, Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. I bless God that the Bible is permeated with stories of suffering and sorrow and delays. This is one of the things that makes it so believable. We can get so easily absorbed with what causes trouble, disability, suffering, what causes poverty, long-term disability, mental illness, and forget about the purposes of God in those things. 
It distracts us from God's ultimate plan. I can see in my difficulties like how most of the world sees Mephibosheth. He doesn't have gifts. We have to take care of him. He's never going to be productive. He's not going to be able to hold a job. This is going to be the worst. You know, those kind of things. This trip, these circumstances, this curveball, this person, this distraction, there's no worth to this. No matter what mess you're in or what pain you're in, the causes of that mess and that pain, the curveball, they are not decisive in explaining it. What is decisive in explaining it is God's purpose. Yes, there are causes, some of them your fault perhaps and some of them not. But those causes are not decisive in determining the meaning of your mess or your pain. What is absolutely decisive is God's purpose. So often God reveals through the most creative means if we would just slow down and listen. There is a way to have your whole worldview structure altered so that what almost everybody in the world sees as not gift, but pain and sorrow and something that would cause anger and rebellion and depression to actually see it as a gift in every way. I was absolutely lost until God let me see how lost I was. We all have disabilities. We're all slow. Yet God works in the midst of our slowness. I had a friend come to me one time and say, would you die for Jesus Christ? I was like, absolutely. And then he said, would you give up your legs or your eyes for your family? I had to think about that one. And he turned to me and said, would you give up your legs, your eyes, and even your mind for your family's salvation? Many things in the Bible make no sense until God becomes your supreme value, more valuable than health and life, than my priorities and destination and plan. God's word keeps calling us back to the fact that if that is your view, you're the one who is slow, off course, and lost. Being loved by God and being with God forever is better than having the dream vacation, better than two good feet, and better than being alive in this world. If we don't believe that, then saying that God has wise and good purposes in all our losses will not be much comfort. But if we do believe it, not only will God's purposes comfort us and strengthen us, but they'll make us able to patiently and gently help others through their times of darkness and to handle any course corrections and changes in destination that come our way with joy. And if you'll confess your sins, if you'll hold fast to Jesus as your rock and your redeemer and your riches, God's purpose for your mess and your pain will be a good purpose. It will be worth everything you must endure. We know this is true because God says so. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Of course, none of this makes sense or be helpful if God himself and the glory of his incomparable works is not your greatest treasure. 
May God give you eyes to see that the display of his works and his son's suffering and your trouble are all expressions of his love. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because one day Revelation tells us he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When we know heaven is our destination, we can handle life's momentary lapses with confidence.